You may be seated. I perhaps should have... Next week, I'm going to switch mic. Thanks. I perhaps should have saved that hymn for next week because we're doing 1 Corinthians 13 next week. Nothing wrong with singing it twice in a row, I guess. So to grasp today's text, sort of the emotional impact of today's scripture passage, I need you to uh, I need your imagination in two steps. The second step is maybe going to be a little bit more of a stretch than the first, but both are important. So step one of your imagination. I want you to imagine that you love ice cream as much as Pastor Bob does. So this is, I've become even more famous in the last couple of weeks for my love of ice cream. And honestly, about six weeks ago, Linda and I decided to go low-carb. And uh, I was doing pretty well. And even since then, I haven't had uh, baked potato or rice or maybe just a handful of potato chips and, and all that time. Uh, yesterday, I, I sent a text to my family. I, passed, uh, I went past the Krispy Kreme donuts, I want to say like eight times, a whole tray of them, and didn't even eat one. Like I, There are certain things I, I, I'm fine with resisting, but ice cream has been a bigger problem for me. And I'm going to blame it on the anniversary Sunday when they had all that Moo Moo chocolate. And then there was leftover Moo Moo chocolate that had to be eaten by somebody. And then I was kind of getting through all that, and we finished up our carton of leftover ice cream. And I went to Indianapolis for a meeting the last couple of days. And I want you to know my wife is the one that made the hotel reservation. And when I was taken there by the Uber driver right next to the hotel within walking distance, and so I don't have a car, was Freddy's frozen custard. So I was there for a couple of days and in meetings all day, and so only there during the evening, and Linda said, well, how many times did you go to Freddy's? I said, only twice. So at any rate, I have this weakness, okay? So I need you to imagine for a moment that you love frozen treats as much as Pastor Bob. That's step one. Step two, I want you to imagine that the only ice cream or frozen treat of any kind in Hickory, North Carolina, is manufactured at the Buddhist temple on Sandy Ridge Road. So they make it, they pray mantras over it as they make it, they dedicate it to Buddha, they enjoy it as, uh, in, as part of their worship, and then whatever they have left over, they send to the local grocery stores to sell. And again, using your imagination, I want you to imagine that's the only source for ice cream or frozen treats in Hickory, North Carolina, and you really like it. Okay, you got it? All right, so a couple of questions for you. Would you buy the ice cream in the store? And if someone else bought it, would you eat the ice cream that they bought? If you went to someone's home for dinner and they were serving ice cream, would you ask them, where did you get it? And if someone else made a different choice than you did about ice cream, would you be okay with that, whatever your choice was? So this is exactly, almost parallel exactly, to the dilemma that faced the first century Christians in Corinth and in other places. And maybe it brings it home a little bit more real to you. So when Paul begins this chapter, he, sa- he starts out now about, 
And that's a phrase that tells you he's responding to the second topic of the, the ones that the Corinthians wrote to him concerning. So the Corinthians is divided into two, first Corinthians is divided into two parts. First, what Paul has heard concerning the Corinthians, that's chapters one through six. Chapter seven and following, what he heard from them, they wrote to him. And the first question had to do with sex and marriage. And that's where we were last week in chapter seven. When Paul uses the phrase now about, he's changing topics here. So he's got a new topic, but it's one of the topics that they had written to him in their letter. Now about food sacrificed to idols. The word food actually doesn't appear in the text. It's literally things sacrificed to idols, which probably means food, as we're going to see in the rest of the text. But basically, he's raising the question, things sacrificed to idols. And interestingly enough, the, the, the Greeks who actually worshipped at the idol temples did not use that word. So by using the word idol, he's putting a Jewish Christian spin on it, a negative spin on it. They would talk about things sacrificed to a divinity. Or, you know, they may think about things sacrificed to our beloved God, right? But when, you're, when you talk about it from a, a Jewish or Christian perspective, you use this compound word, which is uh, just one word in Greek, now about idol-worshipped things, like things sacrificed to the idols. That's the topic which he will address here in this chapter. So I see four basic points that Paul makes, and this is one of those sermons where you will follow me better if you pull out the Bible or pull it out again and find 1 Corinthians chapter 8, because I just want to follow what I see as Paul's four basic responses to that. And then we're going to try to see if it fits somewhere in our world when we don't live in a world where you have to buy ice cream that was manufactured at the Buddhist temple. What else might be involved? So here we go. Paul's four points in response to food sacrifice to idols. Number one, knowledge is tricksy. So I thought I was borrowing tricksy from uh, Gollum in Lord of the Rings and J.R. Tolkien, but I actually learned that Tolkien borrowed a rather common word in older English, goes back to Shakespeare, and it means kind of what it sounds like it means. So Paul apparently quotes the Corinthians when he says in verse one, we know that, quote, all, we all possess knowledge. The accumulation of knowledge has been a cultural value from Paul's time and maybe before all the way up until now. And it's for you, right? So you, you realize that you, you're born with a relatively blank slate and you only get 70 or 80 years to accumulate all the knowledge that you're going to accumulate in a lifetime. And uh, it's not enough time. Trust me, the older I get, I'm three quarters of the way toward that, you know, 80 or so year mark. And just about the time you start to think I'm, I'm, I'm learning a few things, then you can't remember half of them and nobody cares what you think anymore. So it's, it's a relatively short amount of time to accumulate knowledge and it's a high value in our culture. So Paul says, he concedes to them, this is your point, we all possess knowledge and he's referring to things sacrificed to idols. Apparently this was uh, the kind of proverb that people would quote to sort of end a conversation, to sort of shut things down. Sort of like we might say, to each his own. And that means, okay, I'm done talking about this, you got your opinion and you've got mine. We all possess knowledge, is what they would say. The last couple of days I've been uh, in Indianapolis and I was there for a meeting of the United Church of Christ and we had a number of different conversations 
Uh, and my part there was to say, you know, what does it mean to be evangelical or conservative? Are conservatives welcome in the broader church? And somebody made a comment intending to be very affirming of me and other people self-identified as conservatives in the room along the line of, you know, it's really okay. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. I think we all ought to be okay with what other people believe. And my response to that was, as an evangelical, I I just want you to know that if you say that in the presence of an evangelical, you're probably not going to get a a nod. So I want to be respectful of you, but I actually don't think that it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe. There are things that are true and some things that are not true, and I would like to be clear about that. So uh, Paul's response to this proverb, we all possess knowledge, which is along that same line, everybody knows what they believe. Paul's response sounds like this. Well, yes and no, because knowledge is tricksy. Some knowledge is good, and some knowledge is counterproductive. So he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So the more you know, the more you are at risk of pride. And when you're proud, then you are likely not to be concerned about the impact of your life on another person. I'll never forget moving from my freshman year to my sophomore year in college. And I don't know why they didn't tell us this in high school, or maybe I forgot it, but it was in college where they chose to tell us the definition of the word sophomore. Do you remember that? Like it means wise fool. That's literally what it means. So you think you've achieved something by getting to the end of your freshman year, and like I know stuff now, and they remind you at the beginning of your sophomore year, you just think you're wise, you're still an idiot. So uh, this is the idea of the accumulation of knowledge, because the more you know, the less you realize that you do know. Somebody quoted Dr. Phil in my Bible study the other day, and, you know, it's always a little risky, I guess, to quote Dr. Phil, but he's right on this point when he says, you don't know what you don't know. So there's where Paul goes here in the next verse. He says, those who think they know something, verse 2, do not yet know as they ought to know. And then he gives a third response. So knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something don't know what they ought to know. And then third in verse 3, he says, whoever loves God is known by God. Notice how often he uses the word know. This reminds me of psychiatrist Dr. Kurt Thompson's visit to Corinth a few years ago when he reminded us that our deepest human longing is to be known, to be known by other people, but especially to be known by God. The truth is that the accumulation of facts, if that's what you mean by knowledge, doesn't really satisfy an empty soul. But to be known does. And when you realize that God knows you best and he loves you unconditionally in his knowledge of you, that is where you find security and meaning in life. So the more you learn, the more you realize there's more to know and you'll never master it in this life. But when you pursue a love bond with God to, be know, to know and be known by him, That is what the heart yearns for. So knowledge is tricksy. Don't just put it out there. Knowledge is good. It can be deceitful. Second point Paul makes begins in the next verse, verse 4. Theology is essential. So whatever Paul deals with, he's always going to come back to how are we impacted by the truth about God and about Jesus, about the gospel here. So we all possess knowledge is only a partial truth. And one of the reasons that it's only a partial truth is because some people believe wrong things. So verse 4 says, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. And there's no 
God, but one. So not all theology is true or good. Your theology, if you believe in more than one God, is actually false. But Paul seems to make a concession for the sake of argument. Verse 5, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there apparently are lots of gods and lords, he's again thinking through the way a Corinthian, secular Corinthian might think. Paul is saying, let's not feel at this moment we have to repair everybody's theology at the moment. Just just stay with me for a minute here. Even if there are so-called gods, verse 6, yet for us there is but one God and we need to understand that. So he is the father from whom all things came and for whom we live. And fascinatingly enough, he adds another sentence to this. There is only one Lord Jesus Christ through whom all things came and through whom we live. So this is powerful not only for its reaffirmation of the Jewish Shema, there is only one God, but also for Paul putting Jesus in the same sentence and on the equal plane. This one God that we worship is Jesus Christ. He has come to us in the person of Jesus. So theology is essential. And before we're ready to move on to talk about what we do with these areas that seem like gray areas, let's make sure we get it. When people offer food to a God, they're really offering food to a nothing. You get Paul's point? When people offer food to an idol, they're offering their food to a nothing. So if you offer food to a nothing, does it change the food? That's Paul's argument. All right? Because we know there's only one God and only one Lord, Jesus Christ. Third point Paul makes starting in verse 7, food is non-essential. So theology is essential. Food is non-essential. And so he says, why are we worried about food that's been offered to a nothing? Verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge, that is, that there's only one God. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that they freak out. Okay, that's not literally in the text, but when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. So not everybody thinks about the fact. They may intellectually know it, but even Christians might not think about the fact that this idol is a nothing. So verse 8, food does not bring us near God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now, pause there for a moment because there are some nutritionists out there in the congregation who are really nervous right now because Pastor Bob just read this place where it says it doesn't matter what you eat. Just let me calm down a little bit. You know, this is not about nutrition here. He's not talking about diet here. He's not talking about your proportion of proteins and fats and carbohydrates. He's not dealing with that. He's just saying spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, we're no better or worse what we eat or don't. If some people eat something that you don't eat, it doesn't bring them closer to God. Okay, then, Paul, it doesn't matter whether you ever eat those foods or not, right? You can feel feel free to make your own choice about meat sacrificed to idols. Nobody else's mores should affect yours, right, Paul? Don't let anyone restrict your freedom, right? And Paul answers, no, 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 that's wrong. You made the wrong conclusion. Your knowledge led you in the wrong place because of his fourth point. Freedom has limits, So knowledge is tricksy, theology is essential, food is not essential, but fourth, freedom has limits. So remember where Paul first started, his uh, first response to to, uh, we all possess knowledge was knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So now he's going to circle back around to this argument. What does it mean to think about love and not knowledge when you think about food? 
So he's been increasing, or at least reaffirming their knowledge of what's true. Paul's not anti-knowledge. He just doesn't want your knowledge to dilute or displace your love. So not everyone knows that by uh, eating food sacrificed to an idol, you're eating it to a nothing, and that it doesn't taste, uh, it doesn't taint the food. Nothing about that. You know, the food that you've ingested actually is not like ingesting an idol, right? So Paul has made the yes case convincingly. Yes, it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now he's going to make the no case. You're also free not to eat that food. Why would you not eat the ice cream that was manufactured at the Buddhist temple in dedication and propagation of Buddha? Why would you not eat that food if Buddha really isn't a god and if the religion is false? Why would you still not eat it then? Why does it matter? Verse 9. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Pause on the word stumbling block. I don't know if that's part of your everyday language, but it doesn't really need a whole lot of explanation. It's the, it's the toy truck that the toddler left in the middle of the living room floor. It's the curb that somebody put out there that you weren't looking down and didn't see, and you literally trip over it. So that's the idea of a stumbling block. And Paul says, be careful that when you exercise your freedom to eat, your eating doesn't produce a stumbling block for someone else. It might trip them up. So who are the weak? Really interesting question, because in the church where I grew up, the strong were the ones that had the most scruples. The strong were the ones that didn't go to the theater and didn't dance and didn't drink, and that made you a good Christian. That made you a strong Christian. It was a weak Christian who gave in to all of those rules. And in Paul's text here, he actually reverses that, and he says the weak are the ones who have more restrictions on what they do. So what's Paul saying? Why are they weak? Probably he's saying that they are weak because they need rules that they can't really handle the uncertainty of not having rigid descriptions of what to do, a list of I can do this and I can't do that. They have a sensitive conscience. They really care about, what's doing, uh, about doing what's right. They think about God watching what they're doing. They think about other people watching what they're doing. And because of that, they want to be extremely precise about what's good and what's bad. And in fact, this is so important to them and this is, I think, part of Paul's point as well, that the weak, uh, it's so important to them to, that, to, to follow the rules that they need for everybody close to them to follow the same rules. So it's very upsetting to them to have a list of rules and to have people in their family or people in their church or people in their neighborhood or people in their restaurant or people where they go to eat at their homes to follow the same rules. Because if you break the rules, it's going to cause me to lose my self-control and I'm not going to be able to keep my rules. So I'm going to only be around people who have the same list of rules that I do. That's what Paul means by the weak. And in what case might you, if you are strong and if you have fewer rules, be their stumbling block? In what sense? And Paul continues in verse 10, if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all of your knowledge, which he's con conceding here, eating an, in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So there are some sins that are sins to everybody, right? Don't commit adultery is not like, eh, adultery might be a sin for you, but it's not for me. Like, 
that's just a sin for everybody, right? So, or, you know, abuse. You don't have to say, well, abusing children is okay for some people, but not for others. There are some really clear lines that are black and white issues, and Paul's not talking about those. He's talking about what we might call gray areas, the things that are conscience-driven or the things about which Christians disagree about right and wrong. And in that case, something might truly be sinned to someone else, and it's not to you. So you can do that. Your conscience doesn't bother you. But if you do it in front of this person, they end up doing it. It's going to bother them all night. They can't sleep. They can't pray. They can't be around other people because they've done something that offended their conscience, and it was your fault because you simply had to exercise your freedom in front of them. And Paul says you need to consider their conscience, not just your own. And in fact, he says, verse 11, this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died, do you realize, bringing the gospel back in. Jesus died for them. They love Jesus. And now you've just destroyed their faith because you had to have that thing at that moment. And then he says, if you haven't gotten the point yet, verse 12, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So you thought you weren't sinning by eating that thing or by partaking that, uh, of that beverage or, or doing that action? You thought that wasn't sin? But now Paul says you've sinned against Jesus because you've, you've wounded someone that he deeply loves and that he died for. And then Paul concludes with his own personal practice in verse 13. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. And Paul goes into a rather remarkable three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, expanding on this theme. What does it mean to you as a Christian to live out love instead of your own freedom in knowledge? Which brings us to the question of what does this have to do with you and me? Because we don't have a marketplace where they sell meat that has been sacrificed to idols. And you can get ice cream that was not manufactured at the Buddhist temple. So where do we apply this lesson to us? So I started making a list of areas in which Christians disagree. And honestly, the list came slowly at first, and then it just sort of sped up. Because when you think about it, there are a lot of areas in which Christians differ about what's wrong, right and wrong and where your conscience might be clearly different from someone else's. So let me just mention a few of them, like real fast. The use of alcohol, or which alcohol you use, and when and where. Involvement in politics on one side or another. Support of this president, or the last president, or the next president. Observance of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. How do you observe the Sabbath and how important is it to you? How important is faithful church attendance to you, involvement in other areas of learning and growth? What else do you do on Sunday? Uh, what chores do you do on Sunday? What chores do you not do on Sunday? How much do you travel on Sunday? And speaking of travel on Sunday, 
uh, travel sports. How much do you get involved in that? Is that okay for Christians to get involved in things that take them away from the life of the church even on a Sunday morning? Speaking of children, differences of how you raise children, how you discipline children, whether you use corporal punishment on your children or not, whether you put them in a Christian school or a private school or a public school. Uh, guns and gun rights would be areas in which Christians disagree. What kinds of film and art are appropriate for Christians to watch and enjoy? And when do they, when do they go over into areas that maybe we should not support? What constitutes good stewardship? And when are you really wasting God's money and just lavishly spending it on yourself? When does it become greed and, you know, sort of self-aggrandizement rather than really using God's money for the very best uses? Then there's a whole range of issues about sex and marriage and divorce and remarriage and abortion that are related in some way to this. Then there are your devotional practices, when and how and where and how long you talk to God and in what ways and how important is that to you and how important it is to other people in, the, in terms of what they do. How about fraternities and sororities and college and beyond and how they tend to influence young people? There are Christians who disagree about that or, or affiliation with the Masonic Lodge or some other organization outside the church appropriate clothing and modesty and dress and how important that is and in what settings that becomes important. The, I would have never thought about it, but my Thursday Bible study raised tattoos the other day and is like, is that okay for people who follow Jesus? And does it depend, depend on what the tattoo is, on, on where the tattoo is, right? So we won't go any further along that line. So, and then there's whatever else you and your spouse might have argued about this past week. So there's this whole long list of areas where some Christians say, like, this is really important. This is how you follow Jesus. This is what it means to live a life of obedience. And other Christians say, no, I don't really have that same set of standards. And so what do you do when your knowledge is different than their weakness or your freedom is different than their rules? What do you do about that? So you may say that some of the areas that I mentioned are very clear in the Bible. And I'm going to say that for at least some Christians that I know, including some that I hung around with the last two or three days, they would completely disagree with what most of you may say is a very important biblical principle. And I would just want to remind you that when Paul brings up the issue of food sacrifice to idols— or in other cases where he brings up circumcision, or in cases where he brings up uh, how you live out the Sabbath, there were plenty of Christians in Paul's day who would have said, I can point to you in the Bible where my rules come from. It's very clear there. Remember, they didn't have the Gospels and the Epistles. All they had was the Old Testament. So they could pull out their Bible and show their brothers and sisters in Christ why your freedom has far trans, uh, transcended what God says your freedom should allow you to do. It's right there in the Bible. And over all of these millennia, since the time of Moses, if not before, believers have disagreed on even the biblical understanding of where these lines fall. Paul wants to change the question from what can I do to how can I love? If you take nothing else from this sermon, take that. Paul wants to change the question from what can I do to how can I love? 
And as I said, he expands on this theme over the next couple of chapters, and I was trying to figure out how I could have some really wise words to wrap all this up and make it make sense. And I, I, my, my, my mind drifted over to the end of chapter 10, where Paul concludes this section. And I'm just going to read it to you, because I think Paul's conclusion is better than anything that I could say. And I'm going to read it to you in the message, because that even brings it closer to home for me. So this starts in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, and this is how Paul wraps up this conversation. Looking at it one way, he says, you could say anything goes. Because of God's immense generosity and grace, we don't have to dissect and scrutinize every action to see if it will pass muster. But the point is not just to get by. We want to live well, and our foremost effort should be to help others live well. With that as a base to work from, common sense can take you the rest of the way. Eat anything sold at the butcher shop, for instance. You don't have to run an idolatry test on every item. The earth, after all, is God's and everything in it. That everything certainly includes the leg of lamb in the butcher shop. If a non-believer invites you to dinner and you feel like going, go ahead and enjoy yourself. Eat anything placed before you. It would be both bad manners and bad spirituality to cross-examine your host on the ethical purity of each course served. On the other hand, if he goes out of his way to tell you that was sacrificed to my god or to the goddess so-and-so, then you should pass. Even though you may be indifferent as to where it came from, he isn't, and you don't want to send mixed messages to him about who you are worshiping. But, except for these special cases, I'm not going to walk around on eggshells worrying about what small-minded people might say. I'm going to stride free and easy, knowing what our large-minded master has already said. If I eat what is served to me, grateful to God for what is on the table, how can I worry about what someone will say? I thanked God for it, and he blessed it. So eat your meals heartily, not worrying about what others say about you. You're eating to God's glory, after all, not to please them. As a matter of fact, do everything that way, heartily and freely, to God's glory. At the same time... Don't be callous in your exercise of freedom, thoughtlessly stepping on the toes of those who aren't as free as you are. I try my best to be considerate of everyone's feelings in all these matters. I hope you will be too. Amen. So I raised among the issues where Christians differ the issue of our politics and our support of this president or the last one or the next one. Someone sent me an email this week that was forwarded from Franklin Graham in which he asked us to pray for the president. And I was trying to think about the ways in which I might pray for the president that aren't political, because I want to pray for this president the same way I prayed for his predecessor and will pray for his successor no matter he or she, no matter who he or she may be. That's my duty as a Christian, to pray for all of those who are in authority over us, and that's what Paul himself commanded us to do. So in order to get out of my generation and not be accused or thought of, although according to Paul, I shouldn't care what you think about it, right? But to get out of that and just pray a prayer for the president, I went back to our hymnal, and you can turn there if you want, but you don't need to. At the back of your hymnal are some prayers I borrowed from number 10, which was written in 1941. So just as World War II was breaking out, or maybe it was written before then, but it was published then, and it's a prayer for our nation, a prayer for those who govern over us. And I would like to, for you to join me in your hearts as I pray this prayer for our nation and for its leaders. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, the Father of mankind, you have commanded us to make intercession for all men and women. Hear us while we pray, that it may please you to bless the whole family of mankind from one end of the earth to the other, to destroy every form of tyranny and superstition, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to remember for good all rulers, to bind all nations in unity, peace, and concord, that it may please you to look with favor upon our country, to preserve to us the blessings of an equal and impartial freedom, to bring in upon us the righteousness of the kingdom of God, and so to control us by your good spirit that we may use our liberties only for your glory and the welfare and progress of humanity. That it may please you to bless our president and all who bear office, to rule their hearts in your faith and fear and love, that they may ever seek your honor and glory, and that their example may be a power for goodness in the life of this nation. That it may please you to bless our lawmakers in all their deliberations, to give to each one a right understanding, a pure purpose, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, and to enable them to rise above all self-seeking and party zeal into the large sentiments of public good and human brotherhood. That it may please you to purge our political life of every evil that would keep back the people from the highest measure of virtue and happiness, to subdue in this nation all unhallowed thirst for conquest and love of vain glory, and to inspire us with calmness and self-restraint in the endeavor to accomplish your will everywhere upon this earth. These and all our prayers we make in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now I invite you to stand and join with me as we affirm with believers across the years and around the world the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.